All right, uh, I'm going to go ahead and get started. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here and uh, for the single, not a round of applause, just a single applause. <laughs> um, uh, my name is Wilson McCoy, and I really appreciate you being here today. I am really grateful to be a part of this Pepperdine program and look forward to sharing with you a little bit about uh, a part of my journey in ministry over the last eight years. Uh, to tell you a little bit about myself before we jump into the actual content, uh, my name is Wilson McCoy. We've covered that. I am the associate minister at the College Hills Church of Christ. That is a church about 30 minutes outside of Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I've been there for eight years in that role. Uh, I did four years of my MDiv at ACU, graduated in 2010, and then I moved to Lebanon. Tennessee's home for me. I grew up there in Clarksville, Tennessee, about an hour north of Nashville. So Tennessee feels very much like home, as my accent reveals. And I've lived there, lived in Brisbane, Australia for a year, lived in Abilene, Texas, and now my wife and I, Jessica, uh, live in Lebanon, Tennessee. Um, Jessica and I have been married for six years as of last month. Uh, she is a therapist, marriage and family therapist, who owns her own practice in Nashville, Tennessee. So I'm really grateful that she could be here and we could have some time here in California together um, to celebrate not only our anniversary, but also her birthday, which was yesterday. Um, and she said, I said to her, what, sweetheart, would you really like for your birthday? And she said, I would want nothing more than to hear you talk for an hour. Uh, in a class. <laughs> and so this is my present to her, um, which I appreciate. But I'm not actually going to talk an hour uh, because that wouldn't be fun for anybody. What I want to do today is I want to divide our class into basically two big pieces. Uh, piece one uh, is going to be me talking and sharing a little bit about uh, my reflections on ministry with young adults. Uh, and then the other part of class is us talking together. And so as we share, as I share some things, make notes of things that you might want to ask about, talk about, follow up about, because I want to leave some time at the end for discussion. And to make sure that we get to that, I want to go ahead and jump into uh, what we're going to do for today. Uh, and I want to say this, uh, today is not a magic bullet kind of class, um, magic bullets about young adults and millennials. Uh, this is more autobiographical in reflecting on things that I've seen, noticed, and observed alongside of young adults over the last eight years. And I'll talk a little bit about what I mean by alongside of in just a second. Uh, so let me pray and then I will jump into the content for today. Father, we're grateful for this morning and this uh, day that you've given us for this afternoon of sunshine and to have a place of peace and a place of learning. And so I pray for our time together uh, as I share and as we share together uh, that you would um, just bless this space and I pray your blessing on the other men and women who are teaching and leading uh, throughout this campus, um, that you would allow this time that we have to, to grow us and to transform us in some way uh, more into the image of your son Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. 
In the spring of 2014, I did something that I never thought I would. I planted a garden in my backyard. Some would say this was inevitable due to my family of origin. Growing up, I can still remember watching my father soaked in sweat under the summer sun, tilling up soil behind our house. I would walk in between the small mounds of dirt, making sure not to crush the fresh sprouts of green beginning to bud in the late afternoon sun. Now granted, I was more of a spectator than a participant, but still, a green thumb was planted in me, so to speak, from a young age. And so in 2014, those um, green thumb impulses kind of bloomed and blossomed into a small patch of garden in my backyard. It was a small and modest effort. There was no tiller, there was no sprawling lawn. So instead, I attempted a square foot garden, which if you don't know what that is, take four small planks of wood, buttressed up against each other, and then in the middle of that four by four square, make and mix peat moss, compost, and soil. And I did that on this bright blue tarp, and then I dumped it in this square foot garden, and I ran strings back and forth. And so at the end of this project, there were these 16 one-foot squares where I planted beans and carrots and a few dandelions as a protective mechanism against the deer in our neighborhood. And one of the best memories from that first summer of gardening was an early morning routine of taking a water hose out and softly spraying the dirt until it was all soaked. So in the cool of the early morning, I would stand in the shade listening to the sounds of a gentle, gentle spraying hose and listen to the early birds beginning their day. And whether I realized it or not at the time, and over the series of many mistakes that I made doing this garden, um, I continued to do it year after year uh, because as I spent time outside, as I spent time with that garden, I began to learn some things about soil and seed, plant and garden, but I also began to learn a few things about myself as well. Uh, and the reason I start with that brief story of my own life is because when I thought about ministry and I thought about ministry with young adults, it's this metaphor of a garden that continues to come back to me. Uh, Parker Palmer, in his book, Let Your Life Speak, talks about how we need more organic metaphors for ministry and for the spiritual life. Metaphors like gardening and seasons, images tied to the land. And he says we need to use those because they have deeper roots in the story of Scripture. And he holds up these organic metaphors in contrast to a lot of the metaphors that we use when it comes to spiritual formation these days, images that have been influenced by the Industrial Revolution. And he talks about in his book how our cultural imaginations of machine and assembly line and controlled production can dictate how we think about spirituality and spiritual growth. And he makes a compelling case of warning against those as our primary images. Instead, he says, we need these more organic images of spirituality and spiritual growth. And the reason I tell that story and I make reference to that book, not only because it's an excellent book, but also because I think when it comes to young adults, we often want to think about it in the sense of those industrial revolution kind of metaphors. We want quick and neat and tidy 
explanations for how we get more young adults or how we save young adults or whatever the trending headline is. Um, and I find that those are really unhelpful ways of thinking about ministry in general, but specifically ministry to young adults. And instead, I feel like garden metaphors and organic metaphors and planting and reaping and sowing metaphors are especially appropriate for thinking about young adults because what I have learned is is that every garden is different. And when it comes to young adults, depending on your context, every garden of young adults, so to speak, is different. And so what I want to do in this session is I want to talk about the garden that I've been tending over the last seven or eight years. And specifically, what I want to talk about is some values and some priorities and some lessons that I've learned in my time tilling the soil, pulling weeds, getting bit sometimes in more ways than one through this particular garden that I've worked with. And hopefully, something that I say or a theme that I talk about will help you in some way as you think about your ministry, as you think about young adults, um, as you explore what it means to work with uh, this mysterious and organic uh, demographic. And so what I did in preparation for this class was I sent out this survey of several questions to our young adults. What first brought you to our class? Why have you chosen to stay in our class? How would you describe the culture of our class? How can we grow and improve as a class? How has your faith been shaped by this class? And what is one thing that you would want other churches to know about faith in young adults? And so I gave them that survey and asked for some of them to give feedback and to give their reflections as much and as many as they wanted. Uh, and got a really strong response from our class of young adults that I work with. And so the reflections that I want to give are a combination of my own perspective and things that I have seen, noticed, and observed. Uh, but I also want to weave through these reflections things that they said, stories they told, so that it's not just my voice that you're hearing, but it's also the voice uh, of the men and women uh, with whom I work. And so what I want to do uh, is I want to talk about seven values and priorities that I unearthed, let's keep the metaphor alive as long as possible, uh, over these surveys and over these interviews and over these conversations that I had uh, with the men and women with whom I work. And so what I want to do is I just want to hit on seven of these and would like to leave about 15 minutes for conversation at the end, which means I want to move through these fairly quickly, uh, spend about three or four minutes on each one, uh, and then after we get through those, I just want to talk together about what you heard, uh, what you're still wondering about, or maybe something that I missed. So, uh, let's jump into some of the things that I have discerned. Um, I guess value priority number one was what I would describe as a, a welcoming environment. Uh, a few years ago, there was a sermon that I listened to called Climate Change, and in this sermon, the preacher spoke about how everyone has a climate that they can create. And when you create a particular climate, you create a particular environment. And whether you realize it or not, you as an individual create an environment in the way that you might talk to people, or the way you look at them, or the way you don't look at them, the way you may have a smile on your face, or the way you may have a grimaced look on your face, that we all create climates as individuals. 
And we began to talk about that as a class, is we don't just do that as individuals, we also do that as a community, that our communities have these climates and these environments that we create, whether we know it or not. And so we've talked pretty honestly in our class about climates and how that works individually, but also how that works as a community. Um, and as I looked through the surveys and listened to the different men and women that I worked with and things that they said about their experiences, one of the, the themes that popped up, maybe most vibrant of all, were words like welcoming and warm and inclusive as they had encounters and experiences with our particular class. There's a book that I would highly recommend uh, called Growing Young by the Fuller Youth Institute, Kara Powell, who was on campus and I think still is on campus. Uh, her, along with some of her colleagues, did this extensive study on churches who are growing young, and the way they define that is churches who are building uh, vibrant cultures with men and women um, who are considered young adults or millennials or whatever phrase that you would want to use for that. And so they interviewed a bunch of churches that they thought were doing a really good job of growing young, of ret retaining that particular demographic. And as they kind of presented the results of their study, one of the really fascinating phrases that they discern when it comes to young adults is, warm is the new cool. And one of the things that they saw, one of the things that appeared in the surveys that I conducted and that I gleaned through, um, is that when it comes to young adults, when it comes to millennials, uh, warm is the new cool. Places that they feel like they can belong. Places where they feel like they can make relational connections. Places where they feel like there is space for them at the table. Those are places and spaces where they feel like they want to stay uh, and they want to invest. Uh, there's going to be three books that I recommend. So the first one is this one, Growing Young, uh, by Kara Powell and the Fuller Youth Institute. Uh, but there's another book I would highly recommend by Diana Butler Bass. And she talks about this template for thinking about discipleship and thinking about spiritual formation uh, that has also been really, really helpful. And because he's in here, I'm going to give him credit. Ben Fike put this book on my radar, and we read that uh, together with some others. And this was just a fantastic book that we read a year or two ago, and this was one of the most helpful templates that she discusses in this book. Um, she talks about for the last 500 years, uh, the typical path of discipleship has typically been believe, behave, belong. Believe like us, and then behave like us, and then you can belong to us. And so she describes what has resulted that historically over the last 500 years, but she makes this case for an even more ancient way of thinking about discipleship and spiritual formation that reverses the order to belong, believe, behave. That first we create communities where people belong, uh, and then we create communities where we explore what we believe, and then we call people to particular <coughs> kinds of behavior. And we never really set out to intentionally do this with our class, but as I listened to them, I realized that it was that first piece that really resonated with them. They felt like they had a place where they could belong. And once they felt like there was a place to belong, then they were much more interested in beliefs and ultimately behavior. And so a question that I feel like emerged for me from this first theme is simply the question, are we creating places where people, specifically young adults, feel welcomed 
where they can actually belong. And so that's been a question that we've come back to time and time again. Um, and as my wife will tell you, uh, it is sometimes a conversation that is a challenging conversation uh, to continue to try to make space for new people, space for different people at the relational table and make that a top priority. So that would be the first big theme that I observed and I've noticed, the priority of creating a welcoming environment. I would say the second big value or priority is what I would call a relational community. So a few years back I was at uh, lunch with a friend who is a member at our church and he and his wife grew up at our church and when they got married they had decided that they were going to go to another church. They kind of wanted to plant their own roots and do their own thing and they wrestled with that a long time. We have some really deep-rooted families at our congregation and so that would have been a significant departure for them. Uh, but they knew that there was this group of fresh out of college, young professional aged group that was kind of beginning to blossom and bloom and they were like, well, we'll at least stick around a little longer to see kind of if that can be this place for us to really establish ourselves as a family. And as we were in conversation talking to him about why they ultimately stayed, he said something to me that really struck me. He said that what ultimately caused them to stay planted at our particular church and with our particular group of young adults was that these were not just people he went to church with, they were also friends of his outside of the church walls. And what he said that he and his wife ultimately wanted and desired was a place where the people on Sunday were also the people that they were doing life with throughout the week. That that was this real strong craving for them. Um, he had observed some things in his life and in adults around him who had raised him where there were these church friends and there were the friends who did everything else with. But what he said was really appealing to them was the fact that, that that barrier, that segmentation was collapsed, broken down and there was this real sense of continuity of relationship. That they really were sharing life with this group of people uh, week round and year round and that made a significant difference for them. Uh, and so that's been one of the things that we've tried to do with our young adult ministry is to cultivate this relational priority not just on Sunday mornings uh, but also throughout the week and really trying to just get people together in a shared space. And that in and of itself has created some pretty remarkable and organic connections that you can't really predict, you can't really put it into a formula, but creating spaces where young adults can actually come together and get friends who are more than just Sunday church friends uh, has been a really important and powerful piece um, of the things that have happened there with those young adults. Uh, we haven't just been strategic about this, we've also tried to be, or haven't just been organic about this, we've also tried to be really strategic. Um, there's a book called The Search to Belong, uh, not really about young adults, it's more about communities, but in this book uh, the author talks about these four levels of relationships when it comes to our lives. That we have public relationships, social relationships, personal relationships, and then intimate relationships. So public relationships would be sports teams friends where you go to a sports event uh, and we're Tennessee Titans uh, connection so I'll use that 
Imagine you're at Nissan Stadium or whatever the stadium's called now because they change it every year. Uh, and you're standing on one of the sidelines and you're wearing your uh, Marcus Mariota jerseys. And then on the other side of the stadium, there's someone else who just so happens to be wearing a Marcus Mariota jersey. Uh, that's a public relationship. You just have the same jersey on. And you are just at the same gathering of a sporting event. There's no real depth there. It's just y'all both like Marcus Mariota. Uh, there's another level of relationship that this author calls social relationship. He calls these first impression relationships. Uh, so imagine that you go to Starbucks every day and you have your particular drink that you get from your particular barista at 6.30 every morning. Uh, and you can see that her name is Sarah. And so you go every single day and you get to know Sarah's name and she gets to know your name and she gets to know... Uh, that you like to spend $7 on a drink every day and you're happy to pay her every day and maybe occasionally Sarah tells you something that's going on in her life and maybe occasionally you'll tell her something that's going on in your life. It's not quite the Marcus Mariota, we have the same jersey. It's a little more social, it's a little deeper. Uh, but there's still some kind of relationship that you have with Sarah and vice versa. And then finally, or thirdly, there's a, a personal relationship. Uh, and so this would be the kind of relationship that would be shared private experiences. So these would be the people who you might go on a vacation with. Uh, these would be the people who you have a Friday night open and you call them to come over and grill out. It's not going to be the guy that you may or may not know with a Marcus Mariota jersey. Uh, it's not going to be Sarah, but there's going to be this deeper kind of relationship. And then finally, uh, there's the intimate relationship <coughs> category. These are the most deeply held, raw, and real relationships that you have. These are your best men in your wedding, your maid of honor, your bridesmaids. These are the people who are the first ones to find out about the job loss or the job hire, whatever significant and serious event is going on in your life. And because one of the dynamics of our church is that we're a larger church, uh, we've talked about this as a way for thinking about engagement with our entire congregation, but specifically with our young adults, that, that these four categories describe different venues of our church's life. And so our public assembly is a large assembly, and so you may sit on the other side of an auditorium and see someone, but you may have no real connection with them. It's just a public relationship. Um, you might be social with someone. You get to know their name. You pass them in the hallway every Sunday going to class. Uh, it's a little deeper kind of relationship, but it's still... Uh, more of a kind of a Bible class relationship. You're in the class with them, so you know them, you may hear their prayer requests, uh, but it's not all that deep. Uh, but it is deeper than what you might experience with someone in a worship assembly. And then we've kind of talked about this third level of personal relationships, someone that you're actually sharing life with uh, in a deeper, more intimate way. Uh, and this has been the place that we've really tried to make a significant push for with our young adults, and specifically we've done that through small groups and life groups, uh, because what I have found, especially with the changing dynamics of Nashville and how we're getting more transient population, more and more people are moving into our particular community who do not have long-term established relationships. Um, and so they're really seeking out something that is more than just sitting in worship, more than just sitting in a Bible class, but is actually kind of a Sunday evening, Saturday evening, rest of the week experience. And I've found that this has made a really significant difference uh, for the young adults who have been in our class. And so I want to kind of share with you some of the things that they said. I think the biggest thing uh, 
that has shaped my faith is that our faith is built and shaped more by the community we create over the traditional church setting. We certainly get points out of a sermon or gospel meetings. We don't do gospel meetings. I don't know why they were referencing that, but <laughs> hypothetically speaking, uh, but having a community like a class and a life group is where it's at. Those are the times when you get personal, you get vulnerable, you become a community, and you become like a family. Uh, and so there's this deeper thing that was happening with this particular individual named Luke who went beyond just a Sunday morning experience and was actually craving something more and creating a Sunday night um, experience. One other quick quote. When we first came to class, I noticed how everyone in class seemed to be close friends and truly cared about each other. Not just see you on Sunday, friends. Every week, people would come in and hug on each other and get excited about things going on in each other's lives. I knew I wanted to be a part of that, to have friends who weren't into the college things, use your imagination, I'd been around the past few years. Friends with a true purpose and relationship with God, but were still normal and wanted to just hang out and talk about dogs or kids. <laughs> then the life group shuffle came up at the perfect timing and we jumped in. Best decision ever. Those people are still some of our closest friends. And so typically the way that we've done life groups with our young adults is these groups are together 18 to 24 months. At the end of those 18 to 24 months, kind of do a shuffle and a relaunch of new groups, uh, more groups, new leaders, more leaders, uh, and those are these great ways in which to help prevent some of the cliques that can sometimes form within communities of faith. Um, it's a good way to keep leaders fresh and to develop new leaders, uh, but most importantly for me, it is a way to create on-ramps for newer people who come in who want to have some kind of deeper connection, but they just don't know how to do that. And when you place this priority on trying to place people in life groups, it gives them a chance to connect. Uh, and this from a young lady named Chelsea. Her and her husband Greg were brand new and were looking for that and were craving that, and that created uh, an opportunity. And so relational community has just been this big piece of uh, a big theme, a big value, a big priority uh, for the young adults that I've worked with. Um, and I want to say one more thing about this. Uh, just to make sure, and this is kind of a pet project and a pet passion of mine and something that, that I find really, really interesting about our young adults, but also really important to formation. The desire for community was not just an internal desire, meaning the desire for community was not just I want people in my life who are just like me and at the same life stage as me. One of the things that was really interesting as I interviewed and talked to a lot of our young adults is that they desired relationships with people outside of their age demographic. They actually had a deep craving for people who were older than them, people who had had more experiences with them. And it was because of that conversation, it was because of that theme uh, that actually shaped the Doctorate of Ministry project that I did a couple years ago on intergenerational spiritual formation. Uh, and that project, those conversations, those reflections have reminded me and have kind of opened my eyes to see that if we just do age-based formation, that's malnourished formation, that I think a more uh, richer and robust way of thinking about spiritual formation is to do that intergenerationally. And I think this is a blind spot with young adult conversations that I've heard, which is we think it's just about young adults being with young adults, and that's a piece of it. But there's this other intergenerational piece that I'm really passionate about, uh, has been a priority that has emerged in our church's life over the last few years, 
And I just really believe that that's an important dimension of the conversation. And so I said there's only going to be three books, but I would highly recommend Holly Allen's book, Intergenerational Christian Spiritual Formation, that she released in 2012. And she has a follow-up copy, or a follow-up book, that's coming out in July of 2018 called Intergenerate that talks about churches who are trying to do intergenerational things. Because to me, when you talk about a relational community, I don't want that to be perceived just as young adults being with young adults, but also young adults being with other life stages. And it's not just because we think that's a good idea. They express the desire, and there is data that shows different kinds of formation happens when we do intergenerational relationships. So I just want to say that. That's a long tangent that I can go off on, so I'm going to keep moving. Um, third value is what I would call a stretching spirituality. Um, one of the questions that I asked, I showed you at the beginning, uh, was what is one thing that you would want other churches to know about faith and young adults? So I'll let one of the young adults speak to this question. He says, drop the pretense. Uh, we're not impressed by fluff or an overemphasis on making it fun, engaging, entertaining, etc. We want real talk based entirely on the person of Jesus and real methods of building our lives and families in such a way that the world takes notice and is drawn to Jesus. Um, if warm and welcoming were one of the big themes that I saw throughout the data that I looked through, the second big theme were words like challenging and difficult in depth. Uh, that the young adults that I talked to, the young adults who are in our current class, said this was an important piece of them staying. This was important and piece of them, an important piece of them engaging in the life of our community. This quote, I think, captures the essence of what a lot of the young adults said, which is they want the more challenging, difficult, harder conversations. And so in our class, we've done series on death and dying. Uh, we've done series on my wife and I, she's a therapist. We've co-taught on emotional health and discipleship in our class. Uh, we've done um, conversations on money and how that and faith go together. And what's fascinating to me is, is that the young adults with whom we work are constantly wanting more of those conversations uh, that are moving into different and deeper waters than they may have had growing up in some of their faith conversations. And they're really drawn to those, uh, they're really invigorated by those, and so we've tried to place a priority on those. And one element related to this is a couple who I would call them a shepherding couple in our class. Uh, they're about uh, 20 years older than the class average, and this couple, uh, their names are Van and Janet, uh, basically have been the um, on-site mentors to our class for the last eight years. And what's been really powerful about having Van and Janet in our class is not only is that intergenerational dynamic at work, uh, but Van and Janet have a son who has significant hearing loss. And what's been impressive and what's been really inspirational is how Van and Janet, throughout the last eight years, have with our class been very open and honest about the challenges that they've faced with their son, about the faith challenges that they've experienced with that, but also about the faith strengthening that's happened through that. And just having an older, wiser couple to talk candidly and authentically out of their struggle of faith journey 
has been such a powerful formative factor having early 20s, mid 20s, late 20 year olds hearing these stories but also seeing how faith is still sustaining and guiding this couple. And so again, it's, it's created this place in this space where um, our young men and women are hearing how faith can sometimes be a stretching experience, how life can sometimes be a stretching experience, uh, and yet men and women people like Van and Janet can still find faith in a deeper, richer, truer kind of faith. And so I think that's been a significant piece of this journey. Um, let me do number four, five, six, and seven really quick for the sake of time. Um, and then we'll talk a little bit more about that. Let me share one quote uh, from a young man who lost his mother last year unexpectedly. Um, who had been in our class about four or five years. He had heard Van and Janet's story. He had heard stories of some others who had lost siblings. Um, and then he lost his mother last spring. And he said this related to just the environment that had been created. Uh, he can, he's talking about a question from above. But just the general faith that people have when things aren't going right. We've had so many things happen to so many families, good and bad. And their example gives me strength and hope to keep my faith when times get hard. It's easy to get frustrated, and that's happened many times to me, but seeing the people in our class continue to have faith that everything will work out, they will get through, and God does have a plan, really has really shaped my faith over these last couple of years. <coughs> and so this young man who lost his mother last spring uh, wrote these reflections soon after a lot of that had occurred in his life. And it's a powerful quote to me, not only because I know his story and the story of he and his family and his wife and the loss of his mother, but also watching their faith be supported by men and women like Van and Janet, uh, by other men and women in our class who have lost uh, siblings, who have lost people very close to them, and just to watch them be sustained by the community and to show um, faithfulness from these others has just been a really, really powerful witness testimony. Um, fourthly, really quickly, is just what I would call integrated faith. And I referenced this earlier, but I wanted to make it its own category. Uh, one of the things that I have found in my work with young adults is that they are looking for faith that can infuse all parts of their existence. So, for example, I referenced earlier uh, a series that we did on money. Faith and money and how those two things go together. And to be honest, I was really nervous about it because uh, Ministers talking about money never really seems to go over really well. And so I had some reservations about how this was going to be received, how it was going to be heard. Um, but it was, at the end of the year, we talked about the year as a whole. And it was one of the most well-received series that we did all year. Uh, that there was an actual real hunger to see how faith intersected with money. Uh, a few years before that, we did a class on faith and work. And how many people felt invigorated and inspired and challenged about how their faith on Sunday is affecting life Monday through Saturday. And again, at the end of the year, they said that was one of the most meaningful series that we went through. And so it was just a reminder to me uh, that there is this hunger, there's this desire to move from compartmentalization in some ways to a more integrated kind of faith uh, that's infusing and intersecting more and more of a person's life. Uh, number five is what I would call a wider contemplative faith. 
Um, and so let me kind of just talk about those two words, contemplative and wider. Uh, one of the rhythms in the life of our group is to do an annual spring retreat. Uh, and at this retreat, uh, we started this tradition seven years ago uh, that was not well received initially. And this was the thing that we did that was not well received. We had a normal Friday night of the retreat. Uh, and then Saturday, we had a normal morning of a speaker. But then I told the group uh, that for Saturday afternoon, we were going to do four hours of solitude and silence. And it was like the closest to a Luke 4 moment for me in my preaching. It was like not well received. Uh, they were restless. They were resistant. They were not looking forward to spending four hours in solitude and silence. Um, but thankfully, we're at a secluded location, so they couldn't get away easily. Uh, and so basically, the 10 or 12 people who were there said, okay, let's try this. I said, let's do three hours. So they did three hours. And then one of the most beautiful things that happened that night was we came back together to reflect on uh, some of the experiences and reflections and um, encounters that people had had that afternoon. And it was just this beautiful moment of people for the first time ever experiencing more contemplative rhythms of spirituality in kind of a safe and secluded space and place. And for them to um, talk so positively and meaningfully about that. And so what's happened over the last seven years is we continue to have this rhythm of contemplative Saturday afternoons and this rhythm of reflecting on that together as a group on the Saturday evening and then some on the Sunday morning. And for some people, they've said this, it's the, it's the highlight of their year. Um, it's this space and this place where they are experiencing some dimensions of spirituality that they've never been exposed to. Uh, and so there's become a real hunger for contemplative rhythms uh, in the life of our community. Uh, Ruth Haley Barton uses this image that we talk a lot about. It's this image of a mason jar that when you shake up the mason jar, imagine a mason jar filled with, with dirt and water, and as you shake it up, it just becomes this cloudy mess. And what we talk about with this retreat is that the retreat is our weekend to kind of set down the jar, to let all of the dirt and dust and crud that kind of cloudies up our life just kind of settle to the bottom so that we can see clearly um, things and values uh, in God in more clear and distinct ways than we don't typically get. And so we've created this rhythm that has really, really been well received uh, by the men and women in the group. Uh, one person said, during GPS retreat, we, we had reflection time and times of silence. And I've done this before, but it's been years. I forgot how much God speaks to us daily. A lot of times I don't take the time to listen. Our GPS retreat, which is the name of our Bible class, reinforce the importance of making time to listen. So this small snapshot of the value and importance contemplative rhythms have taken. Uh, and just quickly, what I mean by wider is one of the things that has been really well received by the young adults in our class um, is to use resources like the Christian calendar, Advent, Easter, Lent, those rhythms of the Christian calendar, and how rich and meaningful that has become, especially for a lot of young families uh, who are now having kids and at Advent, they're journeying through Advent uh, with their young boys and their young girls, teaching them these rhythms. And a lot of them grew up in churches of Christ, don't really talk about the Christian calendar much. Some of you may not know what I'm talking about right now, and I'm happy to share with you some resources after class. Uh, but it is a way for Christians to keep time through the year based upon the life of Jesus. 
And the first time that we talked about this, some people had heard these words before, but they didn't really put it together. Um, and we kind of put it together and gave some people some resources. And now, uh, one of the best rhythms in the life of our group is to celebrate Advent together, to celebrate, celebrate Lent together, and to show and to see how there's these uh, wider banks of the Christian faith that we can pull from and these other resources and streams that can be really, really meaningful. Uh, and the young adults that I've worked with have pointed out how meaningful that has been to them. Um, second to last, this big theme and value that I noticed in my work uh, is what I call a space to be heard. Uh, one of the things that we do on an annual basis is what we call our GPS Dreaming Dinner, and GPS is just the name of our Bible class. Um, I tell people it stands for God Patrol Squad. That's a joke. Uh, it actually stands for um, God Providing Strength, uh, which was a name that was given to this group uh, before I arrived and started working with them in 2010. Uh, but our Dreaming Dinner has evolved over the last few years, uh, and it's probably one of the highlights of our ministry year for my wife and I. Uh, and what we do on this evening is we set an evening aside where we host a big meal, and then we host a big conversation. Uh, and what we do every year, it takes on a bit of a different flavor, uh, but it's a way for us to ask questions like, where has God been at work in the life of our community over the last year? Um, some of you who are familiar with appreciative inquiry, uh, we use some of those appreciative inquiry questions. Uh, where have been the God moments for you in the life of our community over the last year? What do you most appreciate about this community? Uh, some years we take a more um, critical eye and we ask about growth areas. We ask about things that we can do better as a community of faith. And every year the conversations shape the upcoming year. And what's always really, really encouraging to me is the last thing that we do as a group. And every year we gather together uh, and I have the different men and women from this class write out their dream for our church. So I give them a card that says, my dream for College Hills is, and we dream together about the kind of community that we believe God is calling us to be. And one of the things I love about my elders is I always type up those prayers and those dreams. I give them to our elders, and then I have elders who pray those prayers and those dreams throughout the year. And so it's been this really powerful place where our young adults know that their voice is being heard, not just by me as a minister, but also by our elders. And it's created some really powerful connections in the life of our community. One of our young adults says, Today so many people are often talking about how disconnected young adults and millennials can be. I think that is not the case. I believe young adults want to be more active, but most church settings don't allow for that. The church needs to be restructured to give young adults the opportunity to outreach and dive deeper into conversation. Uh, and I'm grateful to be at a church that is actually inviting our young adults into leadership through things like our Dreaming Dinner uh, and through some other venues and avenues uh, that our elders create and are really, really listening and wanting to hear uh, what our young adults have to say. Um, creating a space for young adults to be heard in the life of your community is really, really important. But, and finally, it's not just about a space to be heard, it's also giving young adults a chance to lead. And I think this is really significant and crucial, and one of the things that I think has been a powerful value in our garden over the last seven or eight years. Um, 
I'll tell the story of a young lady named Julie. About six years ago, Julie was working with our Pregnancy Help Center. And one of the things that Julie, who at the time was about 23, 24, noticed uh, was is that there continued to be young women, teenagers, who would come into the life of our community, who would come to our Pregnancy Help Center, but they would have no idea about what it meant to be a mom. And so what Julie did was, Julie started a four-week class that she calls Great Young Moms with the help of other young adults in our class. And it's a class for teenage mothers who want to learn how to become a good parent. And so over the last seven or eight years, through that ministry, she's probably touched the lives of, because they do it April and October now, over 50 or 60 young teenage moms in our community and beyond. It's been this powerful place where the elders have blessed it. We've had Julie interviewed. Julie has gotten funds from the state. Uh, other classes, intergenerational ministry is happening, working with this particular ministry. Uh, but what's really, really cool is to see not only Julie, but other young men and women kind of blossom and bloom as leaders. And the church has made space for them to take a ministry and let it become what they wanted it to become. And I think that's really, really significant, creating places where young adults feel like they can lead and thrive. Creating a space for young adults to meet and grow together is really essential. Uh, when there, this class started, there were six of us, now there are lots. Part of that is because God has used a lot of great people that have fostered growth. Part of that wasn't just written off, and our elders chose to let us create another young adult class because the other young adults were not in the same phase of life. We're still learning, but we have some incredible faith-based experience that should be shared and celebrated to attract others to God. I like this quote just because here's a young adult recognizing that she's at a place where the leadership of that church is trying to create avenues and venues uh, for young adults to step into leadership. And so these have just been seven themes, values, priorities that I've observed uh, that I discerned in conversation in these surveys, a welcoming environment, a relational community, a stretching spirituality, a space to be heard, a chance to lead, an integrated faith, and a wider uh, contemplative faith. Uh, and so we have about 15 minutes left, and in this last 15 minutes, um, I would like to hear from you. Maybe there was something I said that you want me to follow up on. Maybe there's a lingering question. Uh, maybe you still want a magic bullet, and I'll try to sell you one of those afterwards. Um, not really. That was a joke. Uh, but I do want to hear kind of what your questions and comments are, and then I want to close uh, just with a brief reflection and a final book recommendation if this is a, a topic or a conversation that you still have some questions about. So let me open it up, and then we can talk a little bit. When you say uh, young adults, I've always struggled with the the who's included in this. Mm -hmm. um, are we talking about those who have just left high school um, up to where do you cut that off? And mm -hmm. um, are you talking about singles, young marrieds, young families? Who do you include in this? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. The joke around our church is we use youngish adults because of that very reality. Because, like, what is this particular demographic? And so for us, in 2010 when I got there, uh, I would say the class average was early 20s, kind of young professionals, like right out of college. We have a college class, and um, some things happened there. 
Uh, but the primary demographic that the elders asked me to work with was this like right out of the college, graduate school, newly married, young job. So that's kind of what it was initially. Uh, over the last several years, that age average has gone up, obviously, cause, but what's happened is we're also now having college students, young adults move into that demographic as well. So I'm still talking about like the 20s as kind of the category, and I would say the class age average has gotten higher. But also part of the reason our class average has gotten higher, because of the intergenerational impulses, um, we now have older men and women in our congregation come and be involved in that class. So for example, we have a, one of the um, older men in our congregation in his 80s came to our class to visit and then made a big deal and was like, I'm not allowed here. And I was like, no, I would really like you to stay. And so we, when we did this class on death and dying, for example, he had a black widow heart attack, which means all of your arteries get filled. And so it's like a massive heart attack that you're not supposed to live through. They shocked his heart 32 times. On the 33rd time, he was brought back to life. And so we had him on a Sunday share about that whole experience. And it was really fascinating to watch and to hear because he said some things very directly and pointedly because he just doesn't care anymore uh, in, in, a, in a good, healthy way, like in a, in a mature way. And so, so even our class average is probably even a little higher because there have been some older men and women in our congregation who have come and been involved intentionally. So I'm thinking 20s, uh, that's kind of a big area. Most of our people are now young marrieds. We also have some young singles, although that's a smaller percentage. Um, does that help? And now some of them are becoming young families, obviously. Uh, that's, for a lot of them, the next step they're taking. So how do you uh, blend the, the different groups? I mean, I've, I'm from a pretty small church, mm -hmm. um, and so we have three or four young singles. Mm -hmm. We have three or four couples without children, um, and my wife and I were in there until four months ago. Then we've moved to the young families. Mm -hmm. um, and as the youth minister, I can't be involved with the, the young families because I'm teaching all the mm -hmm. time. Um, and so we, we've struggled with the where do we fit, how do we fit in, how do we let everybody get together mm -hmm. without you're the singles, you're the marriage, you're the family, family. Mm -hmm. Trying to, because we're all at different stages in our lives. Sure. So I, I guess what I'm asking is, does this work with the small groups as well as the large groups? Yeah, so our small groups have been um, blended life stages. In fact, there's a quote, I skipped over it earlier for the sake of time. Uh, there was a guy who, he and his wife had just gotten married, and they wanted to be in a life group with people with kids because they wanted to see... They wanted to be around young parents and watch and observe. And then one of his big pieces of feedback was being in a life group with people who are at different life stages than him was actually really important to he and his wife because they've been able to see um, people who were just a little further on the journey, I think was the phrase that he used. I think there needs to be a little bit of both. I think that people need common life stage experiences, but I also... Um, talk a lot with our young adults about the need for intergenerational, inter 
life stage relationships. You need to be around people who are at different life stages. While at the same time, trying to experience times and places that are just your own. So my wife and I have just started um, a life group for that early 20s demographic. And we do that on Sunday nights with them because they're with peers, but we also trying to create other opportunities for those early 20s to spend time with some of our young families. So I think you have to try to blend them um, and not collapse into one or the other has been my experience. Yes, ma'am? Well, mine was a similar thing. What is the size of your congregation and then what percentage of, the young, of them are young adults? Yeah, so we, we have a large church. We're a large church in a small town and about 10% uh, of our congregation is young adults. Okay. Um, and so they would fit into this category. Um, and that creates a different dynamic than smaller churches. It creates a real different dynamic. Uh, I've got a good friend named J.P. Conway, who's at a church called Ackland Avenue in Nashville, Tennessee. And um, he is at a small church, and they're doing a lot of intergenerational spiritual formation stuff. And it has been a challenge, but he's also um, been a really helpful conversation partner in hearing him talk about when you have a handful of these different demographics and there's not really one that has like a lot of critical mass how there's still a lot of intergenerational opportunities um, which again like I said earlier is a drum that I'm gonna be pretty hard because I feel like as far as spiritual formation I'm more and more convinced that that has to be a regular rhythm um, and so could you have some events for a group of five or six young adults sure but I think there would also need to be regular rhythms of intergenerational things as well because that's valuable and important. So, um, but yeah, that, that is a, like I talked earlier, every garden's different at the very beginning. That's a, just a difference of the garden that, that I'm in right now. Thank you for that. Uh, other questions, comments, thoughts, revelations? Can I ask another Come on, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, you mentioned um, about socializing this uh, relational community, um, and this question may be a taboo or whatever, but um, my eyes have started opening more and more to, uh, I mean, back up. I grew up, you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't, you know, the don'ts yeah. is what makes you a Christian. Um, and... I'm hearing more and more, and I'm seeing more and more um, church groups going out for, going to the bar and drinking and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Is that something you encourage um, if, a, if a young adult group, they're, they're legal mm -hmm. to drink? Um, as a church, is that something you encourage mm -hmm. if that's what they want to do? Or Only if they're paying. I encourage it. No, that's a joke. Um, you know, so what we talk about is, and I took this from a friend of mine, there's closed-fisted beliefs and there's open-handed beliefs. And so one of the conversations we've talked a lot about in our class is what are going to be the closed-handed beliefs, the things that you're going to, like, hold tight, um, and what are the things that we're going to have, like, open-handedness on. Um, and so that's the way I've talked about it. Um, these young adults are adults and they're grown men and women and I want to honor uh, their ability to make those grown-up decisions and so um, 
there's a diversity of opinions and responses on that even within our group. Um, the bigger thing that I've tried to talk within our group about is even with that diversity of opinion on different hot topics or whatever you want to call it, I still think there's a way for us to be unified as a community and say there are certain things that are going to like hold the life of our group together and there's some things that we're going to say we think these are secondary. Um, and we've even had some really interesting conversations about what are those things and what are these things. So that's how we talk about it some. Um, my wife might add to that. But one thing we have discussed um, with like life group leaders and other leaders in our groups, like if it's a life group event, like no alcohol. So yeah. if you're inviting your life group over for a Super Bowl party, like and that's an actual email, we're doing this as a life group, like that's not a time. But if it's someone on a Friday night in their own home and they're responsible, that's another thing. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something also there is some like yeah so we you, I, we try to be thoughtful about what we endorse yeah. um, and we talk about that and we talk about that a lot with our leader like our leader training for our life groups yeah. like I think there's like when you're trying to help people belong to go back to that template um, we're trying to create certain kind of spaces then um, but yeah we live in a weird world where now you you do have like Facebook and Instagram and you can post and yeah. do whatever um, but we have conversations about it so that we can know that this is a place where we can actually talk about those things. Because to me, that's the worst thing is when you can't talk about it, then when you don't name the elephant in the room, you know? And so I think that it's good for our young adults to feel like it's a space where they can at least have conversation and disagreements. But that doesn't mean that we can't still journey in faith alongside of each other. So, um, so yeah, that's how we talk about it. What's our closed hand, what's our open-handed kinds of things. Uh, but I do talk a little bit um, differently when it becomes church endorsed and you're a leader in this class and what does that mean? So, but it's still kind of a conversation and process. We haven't like figured it out. Uh, let me give one final um, recommendation of books. So I've talked about this one, this one, and then this one's one that's not a, written by a Christian author, uh, but Meg Jay, my wife turned me on to this, uh, has done therapy and counseling with young adults, and specifically she means 20-year-olds, back to the question at the beginning. Um, and the subtitle is, or the defining decade, why your 20s matter and how to make the most of them now. Highly recommend this book. Um, she talks about how the 20s are a unique time developmentally when it comes to your brain is doing things that it's only going to do in your 20s. Love your love life and what you're doing and not doing with your love life and how that can shape you and your work life, what you are and are not doing with your work life. And those are the three big categories. Um, so let me close with this reflection and then I will close the quote. And then I'll have my email up here if you want to email me. Uh, we can talk more. In her book, The Defining Decade, Meg Jay discusses the infamous season of our life in our American culture, the 20s. The 20s, she argues, is a critical season in the life of adults. The popular view of culture is that your 20s is a time to kick back, relax, and enjoy life before you have to start living your real life. But Dr. Jay takes issues with the premise based upon over two decades of working with clients in their 20s. 
She argues that our culture needs to take seriously this stage of life in respect to things like work, love, and the brain. Because the 20s are a critical stage of development for the rest of one's life. The 20s offer a unique opportunity in regards to development that we need to take seriously. I think that churches should also take her work seriously as we think about young adults. I wonder if sometimes we care more about getting them into our church than developing them into mature followers of Jesus. There's a difference between having a lot of young adults and actually doing something with them. We need to do something with them. What if churches really leveraged this age group, took them as serious contributors to the community of faith, and allowed them to grow and to develop? Young adults need to grow their faith roots deep and wide. This is a time when we're deciding what our lives will look like, what our day-to-day will look like, and how we'll be as individuals or as couples. We may not realize it, but we're setting the foundations that we will build our futures on. It's time to become leaders, time to mature as individuals, and time to feast on spiritual meat. We need to recognize and grow from God's pruning and do our best to seek knowledge and wisdom and discernment that he gives. The spirit is alive, and if it hasn't been alive in the faith of an individual until the point that he or she is a young adult, then now is the time to find it. A quote from one of our young adults I want to close with, that we leverage and maximize this time of the 20s to really mature followers of Jesus into faithful men and women of God. And so, blessings on you as you do that. If you have more questions or conversations, I'll stick around. Here's my email if you want to send me an email. And I hope you all have a great rest of the day. Thank you for being here.